Hi, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, last month a memo leaked about the Trump administration's plan to define transgender out of existence. We talked to an advocate and activist about how they're fighting back. The most important thing to highlight for me uh, in this current political moment is that we are continuing and will always support local, rural, grassroots efforts. And then, one day only, a kid's version of the Wizard of Oz at the Kingsborough Theater. Kids like to see themselves on stage, and they like to see animals on stage. <laughs> and that's the secret to children's theater. Hi, welcome to the show. Late last month, the New York Times reported that the Trump administration wanted to define transgender out of existence. The news was, of course, a gut punch to the transgender community, and it was only the latest in a string of attacks by the administration. Another notable one was when Trump tweeted his intention to ban transgender troops from the military. While no action has yet taken place on either of those fronts, the rhetoric and the animus aimed at this vulnerable community have had a far-reaching effect. To talk more about this and their newly assumed role as a co-executive director of Brooklyn's leading gender justice organization, we're joined by Anna Connor of the Third Wave Fund. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Ah, yes, thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about this memo. Can you tell us what it said and are you expecting any action to be taken around it? Yeah, so basically what it said was that gender would be narrowly defined by either female or male, and that's unchangeable, and it is determined by genitalia. At and, birth, right? Uh, yes. Whatever you came out as is what it's going to be forever. It's immutable. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's definitely going to be action around it. There already is action around it. And I want to say that this is nothing new for our communities. And, you know, it's just another example of what the administration has been rolling out and is part of their broader work to really dismantle basic human rights mm -hmm. of, of all people, not just trans people, not just intersex, not just gender nonconforming people. And I say that it's not new because it was a horrifying moment, but we also have been organizing and building against this sort of horrible atrocities that come out of the government or come out of state and local entities for a long time. And so we have the tactics and strategies to be able to figure out how to fight against this. That is heartening to yes. hear. Um, the thing about the memo that struck me as being most appalling was how bald-faced it was in its bigotry. Yeah. I think that we're used to a lot of this dog whistle racism or like subtle transphobia or homophobia or misogyny, yeah. but this just kind of came out and said it. Was that a surprise to you? Um, no. You know, I think that we're at a point in the U.S. where people are really mobilized and activated around this sort of rhetoric. And it's actually emboldening a lot of communities. Granted, this is still not new, right? And we still know that that has been the understanding and the framework that white supremacists have been using for a long time. I feel like, you know, even 10, maybe even five years ago, transgender was not really in the common parlance. Mm. And now there is more visibility, both in mainstream media, and we're talking about it politically as well, right. bathroom bills and whatnot. Yeah. Um, you have the Massachusetts bill that was just defeated. It, it seems like we're seeing some backlash. Do you feel like this is sort of a, a turning point or, or just sort of places in the in the continuum of awareness around around trans rights? I definitely would see this as a backlash. 
I want to also step back and say, when you think about a turning point, it's often in response to sort of people in the media that are visible and we see, oh, so now we have trans people in TV or we have trans people speaking their truth. But that doesn't mean that the lived realities of people on the ground in local communities, in prisons, their lived realities are still the same. And it has been the same for a long time. People don't have access to health care. People don't have access to abortions, right? People are being incarcerated for walking while black. And yes, it's a tipping point insofar as maybe there's backlashes on like that level, on the higher level, but still on the ground, it's been it's been dire. Business right? as usual. Yeah. Sure, there's a, a great difference between a Caitlyn Jenner and an incarcerated exactly. trans woman of color. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little yeah. bit about some of the work that you're doing to try and move that needle. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about the Third Wave Fund. Yes, I will. The Third Wave Fund is this amazing organization that is an activist fund that's led by and for women, trans, gender nonconforming, intersex, people of color under the age of 35. And, and what is an activist fund? When I think of an activist fund like Third Wave, I think about how we're actually making an intervention on philanthropy to say the people who set the agendas for who gets funded, mm-hmm. really, um, and who has access to power should be the people who are directly impacted by what's happening in the world. So that's sort of our stake on philanthropy is to not even have a seat at the table, but remake the table and rethink who gets to direct that that funding, right, or who gets to to make the decisions behind that. Um, It's also encouraging people not only to donate or not only to give, but to make that a political act. Make sure you're actually organizing your people um, and encouraging them to donate, and not to donate once, but to continue to donate for years and years, right? Because I hear oftentimes, you know, now more than ever, right, like now more than ever people need resources. That's true. And Right after this moment, people are still going to need the resources to continue to mobilize and push agendas and to make uh, live realities more livable. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a more inclusive model of philanthropy than what we normally think of in terms of large foundations with um, you know, people in power directing funds to support an agenda. Is that right? Absolutely. So you know, I would say one example of this is uh, recent fund that we started is the Sex Worker Giving Circle. Um, And that was really the first sex worker-led giving circle in the U.S. There's many different iterations of it across the world, but there's a critical need for, for support of sex worker organizing and sex worker rights in the United States. So what that looked like for us was actually the people who should be making those decisions are current and former sex workers. And so that's what we mean by uh, interrogating really the the status quo of who gets to make those decisions, who gets to decide where the grants go, the grant sizes, what that funding should look like. That's very cool. And it's clear that the organization is practicing what they preach because you were just named co-executive director. Yes. Um, And I believe you and your co-executive director are both trans or gender non-conforming people of color. Yeah, absolutely. We are. And for me, I, I guess I'm the youngest person who's been in a director level role in a philanthropic institution in the United States. And it just goes to show that Third Wave is deeply committed to making sure that the leadership is represented of the communities that we're like trying to support. Mm-hmm. I came from grassroots organizing. I 
kind of fell into philanthropy. It wasn't like I went to college and was like, I'm going to become a, you know, a grant maker. No. Um, Says no one ever. Right. <laughs> so, um, but I knew I was an activist and that is what I did throughout growing up. And so it's, it's not just about our age or our gender, right? It's also mm-hmm. the experiences we've had before coming to this work. May I ask how old you are and how you identify? Yeah, I am 26 years old. I identify as a queer, gender nonconforming person. I identify as black. And yeah, I'm a radical. <laughs> so. And, and for some of our audience who may not know what gender nonconforming is, can you tell us how maybe that's different from trans or what does that mean to you? Yeah, so it falls under the like sort of trans umbrella, I, you know, you would say. I don't identify as like female or male, I identify sort of like an experience. (laughs) And I definitely, I say my gender is uh, faggy. Yeah, I don't really like to put labels on it, so. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one of the problems that we have in supporting leaders who who are members of the Mm -hmm. communities that they serve is that we don't have traditional pipelines for um, trans people of color, for example. So can can you tell me a little bit, maybe about what you say when people are like, oh, 26 is too young to lead an organization or you don't have enough experience. Can you make a counter argument for that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, first of all, check your ageism. (laughs) Uh, No, I wouldn't say that. Um, Maybe I would. I would say, first of all, how are you defining experience? So does experience mean you've been in a like a white collar workforce for however long and so you know the ins and outs of professionalism? That's one sort of experience. At least at Third Wave, we see experiences as, have you done work of building community? Have you had real life experiences that actually influence and impact the ways you think about how to change the world or how you want the world to be? And so that sort of experience is actually extremely important too. And I'll also say though that Third Wave is doing an amazing job just a shout out third way, um, to, to really build up leadership and to open up space and be really uh, thoughtful mm-hmm. about how, how we can come into this role. Because it is true. Like, it, and there are attempts to bring people in that are coming with a lot of lived experiences and not like professional experience. And there's not room for people to grow and develop into who they want to, how they want to show up. And so I think Third Wave has done an amazing job to address that. It's such important work. Yeah. To circle back to sort of our, our current political mm-hmm. climate, now more than ever, your support <laughs> is needed. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the initiatives that Third Wave Fund is supporting yeah. in order to combat uh, some of the current hate that we see going on at, at the federal level of the government? Yeah, I would say the m- most important thing to highlight for me in this current political moment is that we are continuing and will always support local, rural, grassroots efforts to meet the daily needs of community, right? So continuing to support organizations that that are actually impacted by by these realities. That's That's what I want to nail home and to do so in a way that's both responsive and long-term. And so Rye, the outgoing executive director talks about the bookends, right? We're, we're looking at funding the bookends, funding people when there's a really intense need. Maybe they don't even have, they don't have a 501c3, which is like the legal nonprofit status, but they really need to meet a critical need in their community. We can support y'all and we can do that really fast. And then there's also the other side where 
we need to continue to maintain the work that's happening. So we also provide six-year long-term grants to organizations so that they can continue to do the work and build and plan out six years in advance where, you know, if you're just getting $5,000, $10,000 here, you don't have the time and capacity to actually build what you're trying to do. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, to, um, to know that you're going to be able to keep the lights on for yes. six years is really important. Exactly. And you also mentioned that you do a lot of rapid response funding. Is that right? Yes. Um, so if people want to learn more about the Third Wave yeah. Fund, either to, uh, you know, to give or to apply for funding, how do they do that? Go to our website. That's thirdwavefund.org. Um, you could sign up for our listserv. And there's so many other ways to engage. If you if you're interested in like fundraising for us, we can you can throw a house party. We have a toolkit for that. Yeah, get in contact with us, and we will definitely point you in a way to to support this, right? Because it's also Third Wave is also about building a community of resource mobilizers and activists to move money to grassroots organizing. So it's also that sort of community hub which is oftentimes circling back to earlier, not on the philanthropic agenda to Mm -hmm. involve all people in in grant making. Well, thank you for your tremendous work and best of luck in the new position. Anna Connor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The timeless classic, The Wizard of Oz. First a book, then popularized on the stage. It had its debut in Chicago in 1902, but really caught on at Manhattan's Majestic Theater in 1903. From there, its place in the American consciousness was secured, culminating in the 1939 film classic and later The Wiz. It's never too early to be introduced to Dorothy and her entourage in this allegory of self-reliance. And that's what was on the minds of those with the Vital Theater Company, who are staging a performance for kids for and up this weekend at Kingsborough Theater. To tell us more, we're joined by Anna Becker, the executive director of On Stage at Kingsboro. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you. We also have Stephen Sunderland, the artistic director and co-founder of the Vital Theatre Company. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. So tell us a little bit about this adaptation. It's a tight 60 minutes for children. Yes. Um, and Stephen, you were working from the original uh, play, but you adapted it for a younger audience. There's a Broadway version, and then there's a junior version, which is for many, many kids on stage. We took the junior, actually Michael Schle one of the co-founders of Vital, who's a kind of a theatrical genius, took this play and said, we can do it with six characters. <laughs> and so we ended, we have three munchkins, one flying monkey, and the witch is funny. So, and it retains all the classic songs from the movies, the scenes and the characters, and cuts it down to a really palatable one hour, tight one hour show for, for that age range. So it's amazing that The Wizard of Oz still has legs all of these years later. What do you think um, contemporary uh, children are finding in this story? I think it's just a classic tale. I mean, uh, when the book came out, it was it was called one of the first classic American fairy tales because of it takes place in Omaha and Kansas. Um, also, it's it was broadcast on television, I believe, in 1959, and it was broadcast every year through the 90s. So I think that, you know, we talk we talk about it being, a, the book is a timeless classic, but the film, over time, these things just kind of get into the, the popular culture with generation to generation. And what we see in our show now is Dorothy comes out and sings Wizard of Oz, or sings Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and as soon as the music starts and she starts to sing, you see the moms in the audience, big, big smiles, recognizing the song, and they immediately turn to their child who's experiencing this for the first time. So we're seeing, again, the the tradition kind of being passed down. So I think it's just part of our American heritage at this Mm -hmm. point. 
Yes, and that's what I was going to say. We're finding, um, as the presenter of the show, that the parents are calling and they're so excited to see it again and to introduce it to their children for the first time that the passion just gets passed down and passed down. And that's what's really wonderful about the show and about being able to present something from Vital Theater Company. And Anna, you program for adults as well as for kids. But tell me a little bit about the importance of exposing kids to theater at a young age. Ah, well, that's something that we are really committed to at On Stage at Kingsboro. We are very careful to present only the kind of quality, the kind of artistry that we would present on the main stage for the adult programs as well. And so that's why uh, we have an ongoing partnership with uh, Vital Theater Company. That's why we're actually bringing the o National Theater of Odessa here on their first U.S. tour. There are the Jewel in the Crown in the Ukraine, the ballet company. They'll be doing the Nutcracker for our family audiences and general audiences. They'll also do a one-hour version for our school-time audiences so that we can bring that, that level of ballet and theater to young ones so that right out of the gate, they know what it can be, and it's um, opening up their imagination and inspiring them to be better and to see better. So it's very important to us that we get to them early with really high quality work. And so you mentioned the Vital Theater Companies. Uh, Steve, you're a co-founder. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Uh, we traditionally create original musicals uh, for kids. We've done all kinds of work in the past for adults and children, but Recently, it's been mostly for children, one-hour musicals with adults performing for kids. And then about uh, 11 years ago, a book came along called Pinkalicious the Musical, which we, Pinkalicious, which we adapted into a musical. It's still running now and touring the country 10 years later. So most of our projects are book-based. We take a popular book or a popular title, get a composer, a book writer, a lyricist, and adapt it over a period of time and then debut them on our stage. And then if they're successful, we tour them to theaters around the country. But for The Wizard of Oz, we actually had a presenter in Texas, I believe it was, who said, Wizard of Oz, you should do that. And I thought, well, that's not what we do. But then when Michael Schlegel, who was the partner, had this idea, and so we took something that was original and kind of gave it our own spin. So it's a, it's a vital theater show. It's a, it's a classic show done in the vital theater style. So. And when you're creating theater or theatrical experiences for very young audiences, what are the things that you keep in mind? Kids like to see themselves on stage, and they like to see animals on stage. <laughs> and that's the secret to children's theater. You uh, heard it here first. There yeah. you go. You don't want to talk <laughs> down to them. You know, when I read a play in the first 15 minutes, is the mom and dad talking about the problems they're having with their kid or something. It's like, okay, next. It's, you know, kids just want to, they see themselves. And the thing that I think is so amazing about children's theaters, kids have the imagination still have the imagination that we wish we still had. Like actors go to training to kind of get that imagination back. But you can put something on your head and you become a different character. You can put a round thing in your, ob in your hand and you're driving a spaceship to the moon. So, you know, if you give them truth in your storytelling, they will go anywhere with you. And they are also the most immediate critics. Uh, we call it the Cheerio moment when we're developing stories. When we're developing a new show, when we have our first audience in, there gets a point in the show where the kids start to get restless and you hear the moms wrestling in the bags for the bags of, for the bags of Cheerios. It's like, we gotta fix that. <laughs> They're not with us. But fortunately, most of our shows, we see the kids even young two, three, four-year-old kids on the edge of their seats just mesmerize if they don't understand the story with the song, with the dance, with the costumes, with the color. So, and it's it just immensely rewarding to see the impact, like you said, to, to the impact that you have when you're exposing kids to, to art. 
And, and Anna, tell us how people can see this show if they have young kids in their lives. Yes, well, they can go to onstageatkingsboro.org and they can find us on their website, on our website. They can call 718-368-5596 and reach our box office. We have a full slate of family and family-friendly programming. We'll be bringing Rhythm of the Dance, Irish Step Dancing and Music in March, as well as The Nutcracker, which I mentioned, and quite a number of other uh, Broadway stars and so forth, circus acts. So that's how they can find us, and they'll find quite a bit there for just about everybody. Great. And, and tell us the dates of the show again. Ah, well, this weekend, this Saturday, the 17th, we have the public show. Uh, all throughout the week on the weekdays, we have the school time shows coming where the teachers come and they bring, you know, about 100 kids with them to see the shows as a school field trip. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Anna Steep. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Two words dominate our final note of the day. Digital natives, people born with a predisposition to learning the mechanics and nuances of technology faster than their less savvy and older counterparts. Last week, a group of nearly 100 Brooklyn teens from the Secondary School of Journalism in Park Slope walked out of their classes to protest their digital learning curriculum. Summit Learning, an online learning program spawned by Facebook engineers and bankrolled by CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan, stresses, quote, personalized learning and self-direction. Students work at their own pace while the teachers facilitate. Each kid is supposed to get 10 to 15 minutes of daily one-on-one -on -one mentoring. So far, so good. Or maybe not. David Bloomfield, a Brooklyn College and CUNY Grad Center education professor, said the online system fits the Facebook business model, but was introduced to city schools with little input or review. The protest in Park Slope had a simple demand. Dump the Summit Learning Program. Now. Students reported that their teachers aren't properly trained in the program, leaving students to fend for themselves. They're also having trouble logging into the program for months at a time, and there's a lack of laptops, not to mention shoddy internet connections. They're demanding a system with accountability, real-time learning, and less screen time. Looks to us like the student's message is clear, and to use their language, they're hitting the unsubscribe button. Tomorrow, Brian Vines will be in conversation with a freelance Orthodox rabbi caught between two worlds. Hope you can join us. One Win 2BK is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabella Cantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Chrissy Roberts, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>